You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. This morning's sermon text is taken from Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. Good morning. You may be seated. It is my great delight to open Romans 5 with you this morning. Uh, I love you, saints. I love being here, and I love your love for Jesus. If you're visiting with us this morning, our sermon text is on page 942 in the Bibles in the pew back in front of you. I hope that you will open to see that these things are not just my words and my thoughts, but indeed God's words for our good. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we ask that your Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to receive your Word. Would you give us understanding? Would you give us insight? Would you comfort us? Would you overcome unbelief in our hearts? and help us to rest in the assurance of your love that we have in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. I wonder what you would say if someone asked you, why do you celebrate Christmas? Why do Christians celebrate Christmas? Why all of the joyous celebration at Christmas? Why the merriment and cheer? Why do we sing songs like joy to the world? Why do we gather and feast and give one another gifts? What's the big deal? What would you say? Presumably, you would answer something like, well, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Or Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He came down to dwell among us. Or the theologians among us might say something like, the eternal Son of God 
without ceasing to be what he was, took on a human nature. Naturally, taking your cues from the Athanasian Creed, you might look at your Grinchish friend in the eyes and wax eloquent. We Christians believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before all time. He is man from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God and completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Now, as your Grinchish interlocutor stands aghast, you continue, although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. And let's suppose at this point that your friend is tracking with you and hasn't made a mad dash for the door like some of you are probably tempted to do in this moment. Uh, understandably, you've piqued his curiosity with your flawless recitation of the Athanasian Creed. I imagine him sighing a deep breath and reclining on the couch and responding, okay, so the Son of God became man. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? The reason for joy at Christmas, the good news of the gospel, and the main point of this sermon is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the good news that undergirds all of our Christmas merriment and cheer, generosity and gladness, thanksgiving and joyful praise. It is the foundation of all of our joy that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We might say to our Grinchish friend what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Our text this morning, Romans 5, double clicks on 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul clarifies for us the reason for Jesus's first advent. He answers the question, why did Jesus come into the world? That Jesus came into the world to save sinners is unpacked in Romans 5 by four truths. Here's the outline. First, Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. Second, he died to justify. Jesus came to die, he died to justify. Third, he justifies to reconcile. Jesus Christ came to die, he died to justify, he justifies to reconcile, and fourth, he reconciles to save. That's where we're headed. 
Jesus came to die. He died to justify. He justifies to reconcile. And he reconciles to save. Let's look at that first truth. Jesus came to die. Let's read back through our text and notice all the instances where Paul mentions Jesus' death or his blood, which is shorthand for his death. Look beginning in verse 6. For while we were weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that is, by his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, we could read this and we could come to the false conclusion that Jesus came and he happened to die. But Jesus didn't come and happen to die. He came to die. He came for the purpose of dying in order that God might display his love for sinners. His death was not coincidental, accidental, or unintentional. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word shows here is maybe an under-translation. The NASB translates the word demonstrates. The CSB says proves. God demonstrates his love for sinners. He proves his love for sinners. He commends. He holds out. He makes a grand display of his love for sinners at the cross. Before he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, God planned and intended the death of his son as a display of his love for us. The death of Christ is like a giant billboard that reads, God delights to save sinners. And we shouldn't think that God the Son drew the short straw. He came willingly and eagerly because he shared equally in the Father's heart for sinners. Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5, 2. But why was this death necessary? Why did he do it? Why did he come to die? The answer we have here is that he came to die because it was the only way to save sinners. It was the only way to save us. Look at what we were. Verse 6. How does the text describe us? We were weak. This means that we were unable to improve our situation. We couldn't help ourselves. We lacked the power to change our trajectory. We couldn't simply pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. To use the language of B.B. Warfield, all forms of auto-soterism were off the table. All forms of self-salvation were not going to happen. Also, verse 6, we were ungodly. This means that we failed to image God as he intended. 
We failed to display the glory and the greatness to the rest of creation of God. To use Paul's language in Romans 3.23, we had fallen short of the glory of God. Sin made us defiled, deficient, corrupt, and immoral. We were not like God. We were ungodly. And the root of our ungodliness can be seen in verse 8. We were ungodly because we were sinners. Another way to say this is that we disobeyed God's law. Our problem is not merely that we were unfulfilled, aimless, or broken, although we certainly were all of those things. Those are merely symptoms of the greater problem that we are lawless creatures. Our unfulfillment arises from our worship of idols. Our, our, um, our confusion and aimlessness arises when we stray from God's paths of righteousness. Our brokenness comes from misuse, like a tool used for a job not intended by its designer. We break through misuse. And Paul doesn't say here merely that God labels us sinners because we sin. That was true of Adam and Eve before the fall. But for all of us now, we sin because most deeply apart from Christ, that is who we are. We act out who we are when we step over God's boundaries and delusionally tell him in the words of Jason Harrison's friend to shove off, we're in charge. And it's not just that we chafed against God's rules as though we gladly would have accepted him if he had a few less moral obligations that he placed on us. Paul says in verse 10, we were enemies of God. We were hostile toward God himself. Because our minds were set on fleshly desires, Romans 8, 7, we were actually hostile toward God himself. We hated God for existing because it meant that we ourselves could not be God. There's a reason why so many atheists spend their lives tenaciously trying to dismantle others' convictions that according to them, we worship an imaginary being. If you ask me, the only thing more absurd than worshiping an imaginary being is spending your life trying to convince people who worship an imaginary being that they would be better off just recognizing the purposelessness of the universe. But it's not just atheists who are hostile to God. Apart from the gospel, we all war against God. We desire to un-God God, if only in our hearts we were all enemies. And all of this meant, verse 9, that we were under the wrath of God. This is not a passing comment for Paul. God's wrath is his judging righteousness. In Romans 1.18 to 3.20, Paul has comprehensively argued that every human being stands underneath God's wrath. Every human being stands underneath God's judging righteousness because God is just and we are all unjust. Because of who we are, weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, we need escape from the wrath of God. This is why Jesus came to die. Turn over a page and look with me at Romans 3.25. 
Romans 3.25. What did God put forward Jesus as? What did he send Jesus into the world to be? Paul says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus came to die as a wrath-averting sacrifice, as a sacrifice to atone for sins, to cover over sins, a sacrifice in the place of sinners. That's what propitiation means. It was Jesus's blood, his death in our place that averts the wrath of God. That's why he came. He came to die. He had to die to save sinners, and he died to save all kinds of sinners. Oh, friends, do you know that he came to die and to save all kinds of sinners? What Paul is eager to convince the Romans of, what he would have us know, what he painstakingly spends the first three chapters of this letter explaining, is that Jesus can save every type of sinner. He can save the irreligious sinner, and he can save the religious sinner. He can save the irreligious person who has closed his eyes to God's fingerprints in nature and suppressed God's moral demands inscribed on his conscience. The one who has turned to every imaginable form of false worship, perverse sexual pleasure, and quest for personal satisfaction. Jesus came to save those types of sinners. He came to save the sexually immoral, homosexuals, idolaters, adulterers, the greedy and the fraudulent, drunkards and addicts, the verbally abusive. He came to save people out of the LGBTQ movement, out of atheism, out of secularism, and out of any other ism that belittles the worth of God in the world. And he came to save religious sinners. He came to save those who had been given his law and his traditions, those who boasted in the law that they could not keep, those who sought to be right apart from God by climbing a ladder to heaven through obedience to commands, the self-righteous, the self-satisfied, the self-flattering, the self-dependent, and the arrogant religious elite who thought that they could establish their own righteousness apart from grace. He came to save sinners out of Judaism and out of Islam and out of Hinduism and out of New Age occult practices and out of every false religion with their false saviors and false promises of salvation. And he came to save anyone who encourages people in those things. If anyone is here this morning and you're hearing me offer these descriptions of sinners and you're finding that some of them ring true of you and you're feeling condemned, you're feeling convicted in your heart, I want you to know that I recognize that that's a a bad feeling. That's a hard thing. But what you need to recognize is that you having those feelings may not be a bad thing. You haven't misheard me. You haven't misunderstood me. You haven't misunderstood Romans 5. Actually, for the first time, you may be seeing yourself rightly. You may be hearing God's voice clearly. His first word is often a painful 
word. It's a hard word, but it's a necessary word. And it's not the last word. What God would have you hear this morning is that Jesus Christ came to save you. God loved you so much that he sent his son into the world to save you. He came into the world to save sinners by dying for them. And the only qualification that any person must meet to receive all the benefits of Christ's death is to confess that they are a sinner and to rest entirely, to cast themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ. No one is righteous, not even one. All need to be forgiven. All need a righteousness that comes from outside of us. We need to be given a righteousness that is not ours, but of another. We need a righteousness that comes by faith and not by works. Jesus came to take away the unrighteousness of repentant sinners and to give them his righteousness. In other words, he came to justify. Truth number two, Jesus came to die and he died to justify. What is justification? To justify means to declare righteous. It's a legal metaphor, a judicial metaphor. Justification addresses our guilt before God. It addresses our violation of God's law, our sentence of condemnation before the bar of God's justice. Justification is a pardon. It's a not guilty verdict. It's an acquittal from all the charges that God's law rightly place upon us. Justification releases us from guilt, for rebelling against God's ways, for transgressing his boundaries, and for our hostility toward his person. How does this work? How does justification work? We should note three things from our text. First, justification is by the blood. Look at verses eight and nine with me. Justification is by the blood. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The phrase by his blood here refers to his sacrificial death in our place that appeases the wrath of God, what we saw in Romans 3.25. The basis upon which God can declare sinners to be righteous, believing sinners, with himself not becoming unrighteous, is the blood of Christ. Jesus came to die that we might be declared righteous by his blood. Second, justification is by faith. Look at verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are declared righteous by the blood, verse 9. We are also declared righteous by faith. How is that? How can we be declared righteous by the blood and declared righteous by faith? Because it is only by faith that we are attached to the blood. Faith is necessary for justification 
not because it is inherently powerful or praiseworthy, but because it is the way God has chosen to connect us with the saving benefits of Christ. In his evangelistic pamphlet, All of Grace, Charles Spurgeon eloquently captures the essence of faith in a simple comparison. He says, quote, Faith which receives Christ is as simple an act as when your child receives an apple from you because you hold it out and promise to give the apple to him if he comes for it. What the child's hand is to the apple, your faith is to the perfect salvation of Christ. The child's hand does not make the apple or improve the apple or deserve the apple. It only takes it. And faith is chosen by God to be the receiver of salvation because it does not pretend to create salvation nor to help in it, but it is content humbly to receive it. Faith is the tongue that begs pardon, the hand which receives it and the eye which sees it, but it is not the price which buys it. Faith never makes herself her own plea. She rests all her argument upon the blood of Christ." End quote. Beloved, it is not the strength of our trust in God that makes us righteous before God. Rather, faith attaches us to Christ's objective work on our behalf. We are declared righteous by receiving and resting in the blood. If you're a young person here this morning, you need to know that we live in a world that is so, so desperate to be justified, so desperate to be declared righteous. If you aren't careful, you could spend your entire life on self-justification projects. You could spend your entire life seeking to justify yourself through school, through sports, on social media, in your friend groups. Maybe the question, am I okay, plays on repeat in your mind from when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed at night. Am I okay? Am I good enough? What will they think if this happens? I wonder what he thinks of me. I wonder what she thinks of me. But the only question of supreme importance is what does God think of you? Are you declared righteous before God? Jesus came to die so that you would be right before God. Justification is by the blood. Justification is by faith. And third, justification opens the door to reconciliation and all of the other benefits of the gospel. This is clear from the structure of Paul's argument in the book of Romans in chapters 3 and 4. He has meticulously outlined justification by faith in the blood. But starting here in chapter 5 and continuing through the end of chapter 8, he unpacks all of the benefits that flow from justification. Look at verse 1, those first two words. Therefore, since, he's drawing an inference. In other words, Everything that follows is an inference from what? Since we have been justified by faith, all that follows from Romans 5 to Romans 8 is 
an inference from justification by faith. All the benefits of Christ's salvation for the next few chapters rest on this foundation. Since we have been justified by faith, Romans 5, chapter 5 says, we have been reconciled to God and are no longer in Adam. Since we have been justified by faith, chapter 6 says, we are no longer slaves to sin. Since we have been justified by faith, chapter 7 says, our relationship with God is not mediated by the Mosaic law covenant, but by Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, chapter 8 says, we live by the Spirit of God. This is why we love the truth that God justifies. We love the truth of justification because it is the beginning and the foundation of all the other benefits we experience in union with Christ. God declares us righteous so that he might adopt us, so that he might indwell us, sanctify us, preserve us. He justifies us so that he might glorify us and fully save each one of us. Declared righteousness is necessary for repaired relationship. Pardon is necessary for peace, justification for reconciliation. Which brings us to our third truth. Jesus came to die, he died to justify, and he justifies to reconcile. Reconciliation is Paul's primary emphasis in Romans 5, 1 to 11. By coming and dying and declaring sinners righteous on the basis of that death, Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be with God, for us to be friends of God, for us to be adopted children of God, to enjoy his presence and his peace. Where am I seeing this? Look at his threefold use of the word reconcile in verse 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is not a common word these days. What does it mean? To reconcile means to reestablish a broken relationship. It's to exchange hostility for friendship. What Paul is telling us here is that Jesus came to repair your relationship with God. Look at what reconciliation consists in. These are the components. These are the constituent parts, the primary benefits of a repaired relationship with God. Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We not only have peace with God, verse 2, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This means that we live under God's smile. We live in the joy of his undeserved kindness. The daily aid of his new mercies is always at hand. Not only do we have peace and access into grace, verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
The hope of the glory of God is our confident expectation that although we have fallen short of the glory of God, God will certainly glorify us. Romans 8.30, we will be fully conformed to the image of the Son. Further, verse 3, we rejoice in suffering, knowing that God is working in it to make us perseverant and hope-filled people. We can rejoice in suffering because we have confidence that God loves us. We can be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing because His Spirit poured into our hearts testifies to His love and to our identity. No longer slaves, children. Your suffering, Christian, is not an expression of God's unspent wrath towards you. It's not an expression of His disfavor. Verse 11, reconciliation means that we can rejoice in God. God's holiness is no longer a terror to us. All that impedes our soul's greatest satisfaction has been removed, and we can rejoice. We can be satisfied in God. This is the offer and the guarantee of gospel reconciliation with God, peace through Christ, access and unmerited favor, preservation in suffering, assurance of God's love and fullness of joy forever. Where is this reconciliation going? What is its end? What is the goal? Look back at verses nine and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is our fourth and final truth. Jesus came to die. He died to justify. He justifies to reconcile. And he reconciles to save us. Verse 10, now that we are reconciled, much more shall we be saved. For all who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, reconciliation leads to final salvation when Christ returns. It's a future tense. We shall be saved. We will be saved from the wrath of God. According to 2 Thessalonians 1.7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But when he comes on that day, he is coming to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. By mending our broken relationship with God, Jesus saves us from the wrath to come, and he fits us to enjoy God's glory for all eternity. I'm sure that some of you had a hard time relating to my opening comments about the joyfulness and cheer of this Christmas season. Perhaps you thought, no one's likely going to ask me about my joy at Christmas. In fact, I feel very little joy most of the time. Maybe this Christmas you found yourself among one of the groups 
that Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you poor in spirit? Are you mourning? Are you hungry and thirsty to be more like Jesus, but afraid that 2024 is going to see you failing just as much as you did in 2023? Maybe you're among the reviled or the persecuted in your family or at your job. Perhaps the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners hits your heart this morning and it just slides right off like an egg off an oily Teflon pan. Has the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners come home to your heart this Christmas? I would suggest that if it hasn't, you need to linger over the logic of Romans 5, 6 through 11, because it's a logic that commends God's love to you. We might call the logic of Romans 5, 6 to 11, a since much more logic or the logic of God's love, the logic of love. Let's read the text once more and I'll make a few comments and then we'll be done. As I read, I want you to notice especially the language in the passage about time, the temporal language, phrases like while, if while, at the right time, now. The argument hangs on time. No matter your condition this Christmas, the logic of this passage is meant to give you good comfort in the present and for the future based on God's love for you in the past. Verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the harder to the easier. Paul says, don't you see, beloved, how God has already demonstrated his love for you? Would you hold these truths up to your mind's eye? Jesus Christ came to die for you, and he died to reconcile you to the Father. And God did all that in love for you while you still ignored him, hated him, and blasphemed his name. Do you see God's love on display then, at that time, at the right time, before you had any love for him. Oh, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. Here's the logic of love. If he did all that while we were God haters, he came to die, he died to justify, he justified to reconcile. How much more can we be assured of his love now that we are his children? Now that you are beloved sons and daughters, how much more sure can you be that he will fully save you from wrath 
and bring you safely into fullness of joy in his presence forever. Are you anxious and fearful this morning? Would you listen carefully to me? Do you see? You must see. He would have you find comfort in his shocking initiative to save you while you were still his enemy. This is how he put his love for you on display. When fears arise, he wants you to rest in that love by understanding the since much more logic of his love for you, of the gospel. Proverbs 28.1 says that the wicked run when no one is chasing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. I've often felt that way, that I'm running when no one is chasing me. I wonder if you feel that way. But the truth is, if you are in Christ, you are no longer numbered among the wicked. You don't have to continue to run as though you were. By faith in his blood, he has declared you to be among the righteous so that you can be bold as a lion. All that is chasing you from God forever, like the psalmist, is his steadfast love and mercy. He is the God of peace who sent the Prince of Peace to publish the good news of peace. This is the good news of Christmas and the good news of the gospel and the good news of this text, the good news of God's love for you, that he sent Jesus Christ to save sinners. As we look toward the new year with all of its inevitable pains, struggles, sin, and heartbreak, may we be people characterized by our assurance of God's love for us. May our hearts burn within us when we think about the love of God for us in the gospel. May we, as our text calls us, rejoice in God who sent his son into the world to save sinners like us. Let's pray.